Shalom Aleichem, and welcome to the Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Jessica Kurzain. Jessica teaches Yiddish language as well as courses in Yiddish literature and culture. She received her Ph.D. in Yiddish studies from Columbia University. She's the editor-in-chief of Ingeveb, a journal of Yiddish studies, and an alum of several Yiddish Book Center programs as a translation fellow, a pedagogy fellow, and an editor and contributor to the Yiddish Book Center's Teach Great Jewish Books website. Her research interests include race, sex, gender, and regionalization in American and Jewish and Yiddish literature, and she's published articles about, the, um, about America in Yiddish literature, inter-ethnic romance in Yiddish periodicals, and lynching in American Yiddish literature. Her recently published translation of Miriam Karpolov's The Diary of a Lonely Girl or The Battle Against Free Love, 1918, was the result of her translation fellowship. Welcome. Thank you. It's really always a treat to have a chance to speak with you, um, both here at the center or over the mic, as it were. And I just want to start by saying how absolutely excited I am we here at the center are to see publication of the diary of a lonely girl. Um, I think you know how enthusiastic I was when I read an early mm-hmm. excerpt um, that was on the web, and it's really um, an indulgence and a great pleasure to be able to kind of binge read it cover to cover now. <laughs> well, thank you. I, of course, I'm very excited about it too. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm thrilled. Um, so before I get started talking about the book, I thought by way of background, um, maybe I could ask you a little bit um, sort of about your work. And um, full disclosure, we ran a profile about you um, <laughs> written by uh, Emma Garman in the current issue of Pockentrager, along with uh, memoir translation. And I, I was going to just say what Emma, how she preface the profile. Um, Jessica Kurzain is blazing a trail and bringing forgotten Yiddish women writers to English language readers. Let's start with that. Jessica, tell me a little bit about your work and what led you in the direction of seeking out both the work of women writers and Yiddish in general. Yeah, so um, I started, my dissertation project had very little to do with women writing in Yiddish. In fact, my dissertation project, which was about uh, romance between Jews and non-Jews in Jewish American fiction, both in Yiddish and in English. Um, I initially was hoping to find writing by women on the topic, and I didn't really know where to look. Um, and I, I ended up writing a dissertation that was largely about women who wrote in English and men who wrote in Yiddish. Uh, and, and I think, I believe still that there is material out there about women writing on that topic, but I had encountered so little women's prose fiction at the time that I really didn't even feel like I had a good sense of where to begin looking for those themes in their, in their writing, because I didn't even know who was writing. Um, and so, kind of on a, on a whim, as I, when I found this book, The Diary of a Lonely Girl, um, which I found by searching, researching a footnote for my dissertation. Um, I was looking for more information about the ideology of free love, and I typed Freie Liebe, free love, into the search box in the uh, Yiddish Book Center's website, and this was the first hit, uh, Diary of a Lonely Girl or the Battle Against Free Love. I started reading it, and I had no idea that women 
were writing this kind of thing. I had never read a novel by a woman in Yiddish before. I, to be honest, had barely read very many short stories by women in Yiddish before. I had read poetry, um, but there's, you know, not that much of it had been translated, and even in the in the Yiddish literature, not that much uh, writing by women was really um, sort of represented in the criticism in the kind of writing about writing that I was finding. And so it it um it made me recognize, I think, in a way that I had been naive to before, how much uh, women's writing must have existed and in fact had been printed but um, hadn't hadn't reached um, scholarly audiences or contemporary audiences had been sort of forgotten. Um, and so that that started motivating me not only to translate this very funny book that I enjoyed reading in Yiddish, but also to start looking for other similar voices that um, that I found moving and interesting and that represented women's lives in a way that I hadn't really seen in Yiddish literature previously. So Diary of a Lonely Girl first appear, uh, appeared as serialized uh, fiction in the New York Jewish Daily Varheit, uh, and then it was published, as I understand, in book form in 1918. Um, That's right. Yeah, and sort of... I, it's a. I think it's safe to call it in diary form in a way. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. It tells the story of a woman navigating the social and sexual pressures, as we say, of radical immigrant youth culture. Curious to know what your hunch is, if you have one, both about the audience of readers and how it was received. Because, well, we'll get to this later, just in terms of how, how much it feels like it could be a voice in the... 21st century as it is um, having been written in the early 20th century. Yeah. Well, I, it's it's hard to know in precise numbers about audiences and readers and reader reactions because a lot of that, of course, doesn't have a paper trail. Um, but it was, it, I believe it was very popular as a serialized book. It was advertised in advance. There would be sort of like uh, ads coming soon, Diary of a Lonely Girl, um, and in some of the uh, in the newspaper, there were letters from readers to the editor saying, "Thank you for publishing this. It's such a sort of a breath of fresh air. It brings important problems to light." Um, and so there was some kind of you know, you can never know if someone actually wrote that to the editor or if the editor wrote it themselves to uh, further intrigue the reading public about the book, um, but. There seems to have been some sort of buzz around it one way or the other. And one way that you can measure the success of the book is actually that it ran for so long. I suspect that she wrote it sort of week by week, and knowing that it's such a long book is actually an indication that the reading audience was interested and wanted more um, and, and wanted to continue the serialization. And so, kind of like a kind of like a popular TV show today, right? If it has multiple seasons, then that's an indication that it's... Um, that is popular, that it, you know, people wanted it to go on. Um, and then it was published, also that it was published in book form, right? Most serialized novels were not published in book form, um, but this one, I think, uh, was was so popular by its audiences that almost immediately after the uh, serialization ended, it came in, out in book form with almost, with no editing at all, just exactly as it appeared in the newspaper um, for people to be able to enjoy it 
even if, uh, you know, once once it was no longer appearing in the paper. And it is a it is a substantial book, so you're right. It it had a long a long arc, as they say, um, in terms mm-hmm. of its serialized form. So, could you tell me a little bit about Karpilov? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, Miriam Karpilov was one of ten children. She was sort of the middle child of um, of a family of ten children. She was born in the Minsk region. Um, of what is now Belarus, um, and she was born in um, oh, what, what year? I'm going to look it up. It's 18, 1888, um, and she came to America in 1905. She was a, a young woman. She had previously in um, in Russia. She had been trained as a, a photographic retoucher, and she was able to do some of that to um, make ends meet and also um, her and she also did her writing um, so she settled in New York City uh, first in the in Harlem and later she ended up in the Seagate neighborhood of Brooklyn um, and her first published work appeared in 1906 right after she arrived in uh, the US in a newspaper called Edisha Fun she was 18 years old uh, and she continued her publishing career until the mid 1940s. Um, and she was she was among the very few women who made their living as Yiddish writers. She wrote hundreds of sh- short stories and journalistic reportage and plays and novels. Uh, and she served as a staff writer for the Forward in 19 in the 1930s. Um, but before she had that sort of stable position in the 1930s. I'm sort of finding now, I'm doing some more research about her life uh, now and have delved into her archive a little bit, that uh, really the frustrations and the precarity of the way that she earned her living, because um, when she didn't have a serialization, she spent a lot of energy sort of pitching short stories and sketches and uh, novels to various newspapers and really felt quite shut out um, and was really anxious about whether she was going to be able to continue her career and who was going to pay for her various um, pieces of writing. And there seemed to have been sort of fits and starts, moments like The Diary of a Lonely Girl, which was a, a, a moment of enormous success for her, and also times when she didn't have the stability of a regular income, when she didn't have a novel going. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so she was in some ways enormously successful. She was able to make her living as a writer. She was a very well-known writer. She had friends among the writerly world. She kept up a correspondence. Um, she was this very independent woman. She wasn't married. She didn't have children and um, and was able to support herself through her writing. And in some ways, her story uh, also sort of exemplifies how hard it was to be a woman in the, in the world of Yiddish letters. Do you think there is any of her in this book? I absolutely. I think she wrote herself over and over mm-hmm. again. Um, I don't know that she had the specific encounters, although maybe she did. But um, I, I suspect there are there are sort of moments in her in her letters to her brother. She was very close to her brother Jacob, who she called Nuck, um, who lived in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And she actually, at the end of her life, she lived with him. And um, and they kept up a correspondence their whole lives. She wrote to him and she wrote to his wife, uh, Rebecca. And in the correspondence, a number of times she'll mention sort of that she was carrying on a love affair 
And I think, um, I suspect that she, this was part of the world that she was in and probably part of the, the pressures and frustrations that she herself faced. Yeah. So I was immediately drawn in by the opening paragraph, and I felt as though it could have been written yesterday. Um, I also, <laughs> if I may, um, read Josh Lambert, who, full disclosure, is our academic director at the Yiddish Book Center, um, a literary critic himself and a writer. I just loved his blurb. Who knew that a century before Lena Dunham's Girls, a Yiddish writer named Miriam Karpilov was already telling the world in mordant, sometimes hilarious prose what it was like to be a young Jewish woman in New York City. And I think this it, is very true. Um, and the opening paragraph, uh, she, she writes, A, who is, uh, A refers to one of the gentlemen in her life. Um, we only know him by a first letter. Um, a came to my home yesterday. As he held me in his arms, I felt small and lonesome. He didn't come to bring me happiness. He only came to take some of it from me. No, that's not quite right. He calculated carefully how much love he should give so that he wouldn't owe me anything. I can imagine reading this text um, as a text from a friend, <laughs> in a way. And I think readers are surprised that women in the early 20th century were writing such strong, and I think safe to say very kind of revealing work. Um, mm -hmm. I think of Luma Lempel, Celia Dropkin. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, and and also in terms of teaching, how do you see how do you see this helping us to understand, you know, where where life was for women in 1918 and where it is today? Mm -hmm. Well, in some ways, it's funny that you say it's like texting because when I when I would translate a real zinger, the first thing I would do would be to text it to my friends. Um, so I, for me, oh. <laughs> it's very uh, bound up in in, in that. Um, I do think she would have been very good at Twitter, um, but. Yeah, so in some ways it feels extremely contemporary, and we have an impression, I think, because so many people associate Yiddish with their grandparents, it's hard to remember that young people wrote in Yiddish, and that even our grandparents or our great-grandparents or even our great-great-grandparents used to be young people. Um, you know, it seems like an obvious thing to say, but on an emotional level, it's actually a hard one to recognize. Um, and so I think there's a way in which this comes as a surprise, even though perhaps it shouldn't. Um, and also even, you know, we have certain stereotypes and expectations about what people did in the Yiddish language and what the Yiddish language has the capacity for. But all of those things are in some ways um, sort of on the surface level, obviously false. Yiddish is a language that is capable of all kinds of human expression, including human expression about sex and desire and longing. Um, and so I think this brings that to light. One thing that's kind of interesting about this book in the classroom is that it does feel so contemporary, and I think also my translation in some ways um, makes it that way because uh, I found her very funny and I found her very easy to express in my own language, and perhaps I was able to sort of create a, a translation that didn't feel stilted, that didn't feel like it was coming from, or is trying anyway, to create a translation that didn't feel translated, that you didn't feel like you were reading through a foreign language, but felt like some, that it was written by an English speaker. And so maybe that helps to kind of bring it into this feeling of, of um, being contemporary. 
And that, I think, is a big aid for the classroom. I, um, I, I have only taught excerpts a handful of times, but the students that I have encountered have said, this sounds like something that could have happened in my own dorm, dorm room. And then we can have conversations about uh, what, it, what, what it means to conceive of history as changing through time and what it means to challenge those assumptions and think about things that haven't changed. Um, and, and I think that's um, an important conversation to have. I think we often like to think about sort of like the, the arc of history bending in a particular direction, um, but perhaps it's more complicated than that. And I think that there are, you can read this on many different levels. There's a lot to to sort of um, look at. I, I wondered how hard it was for you to sort of find her voice. And I know as a, you know, a literary translator, that has to be a really constant challenge. And your translation does read so seamlessly. It's like I never think I'm reading a work in translation, testament to what great literary translation is. Thank you very much, Jessica. And um, I, how did how did you find your way to that voice? In some ways, it was surprisingly easy for me uh, because I think, I, I, I hope that uh, this is true, but I think she and I have very similar senses of humor uh, so that I was reading her work and I would laugh and I would feel like she had told me a joke and I was going to tell it right back to her. Um, and, and we were in this sort of a conversation. I've described my relationship with her as a kind of friendship. And, and um, in some ways, it felt very natural and easy to write in her voice, in my voice. They felt like it wasn't like I had to find someone else's voice. I was sort of using my own because I felt it was hers, too. Um, and in some ways, I had to work very hard at it. And one of the, one of the things that I spent a lot of time with was um, English language literature written in the same time period. So I read a lot of Dorothy Parker and a lot of Edna Ferber, who um, I wrote about Edna Ferber in my dissertation, and so I was already pretty familiar with her writing. And I had read a lot of literature in English by women in the 1920s. As I mentioned, my dissertation was half about Jewish American literature in English, and the English side was a lot about women. And so I had spent a lot of time reading contemporaneous texts in English. And so um, I was able to try to make sure that I was using a language that would feel sort of loose and comfortable and um, and popular in the way that the the books by, say, Edna Ferber that I had read were, um, but that wouldn't feel like it was um, anachron- anachronistic. I didn't want to write Sex in the City or Girls or something like that um, in for Miriam Karpilov because she didn't live in that time. And so I was trying to make sure that the, the slang that I used or the turns of phrase that I used didn't feel um, out of place for her. Then I want to make sure I apologize <laughs> in terms oh, of no, reading. No, 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 no. no I, I think, uh, yeah, again, <laughs> I, I didn't want somebody to, the takeaway from that to be that, yes, it was written as if it was in the current vernacular and all. It's just, it's so fascinating that we think, oh my gosh, you know, girls is so revolutionary, but hello, in 1918, women were writing, you know, um, yeah. in this way. So, yeah. yeah. And one of the things that's sort of surprising about the diary is that in some ways it's very shocking, right? It's a, mm-hmm. there are these, all these moments where you feel like it's a near rape situation that she emerges out of. 
um, and there's a lot of it feels scandalous, it feels tense, um, and even just the way that she expresses herself about sexual desire is really frank and open. Um, and in some ways, I think it feels sort of conservative or buttoned up for our time um, because there is actually um, no nudity in the book. There is actually no sex in the book. Um, and so in that way, it feels very different from, say, Sex in the City or Girls um, because it, it, it pushes the envelope, but where the envelope is was perhaps different for her audience than for today's audiences. You know, I think it's also testament to the writer. It relies on suggestion, not on salation. Mm-hmm. In a mm-hmm. way, you know, you you can yeah, you can imagine all that she's suggesting, but she's controlling that voice in an interesting way. Um, yeah, and no spoiler alert on this one, but I just have to say, the agitator. Oh, there's so much to unpack in that. I know. Well, that was such a find. I found that after I had already translated the whole book, and then I stumbled upon this short story, which I think was the seed for the whole book. Um, and it, it's 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 the entire book, but in a very compact scene. It's the perfect it's really fun. yeah. It's the perfect coda to the book too, and also I could imagine as a uh, book group or. Um, you could spend a lot of time not only with a book, but but using that as sort of that punctuation. Um, so what's next? So what's next? Um, right now, I am trying to research more about her life. So I've been to her archive. She's an archive at Evo. She also has an archive in Stamford, Connecticut that I haven't been to yet, but hope to go. Um, and trying to learn more about who she was and how she thought about her writing and how I I have this feeling that she felt that she was very important as a writer. She, in her archive, has a handwritten list of every story that she ever published with the year and the newspaper. So it's very easy to find her writing, actually. Um, And and yet she, I think, knew that already she was becoming sort of a has-been um, in her own lifetime, she sort of start, stopped writing in the mid-40s, and she passed away about a decade later. And I think she saw that her, her legacy was sort of fading away, and she I felt that she was hoping that someone would find her again, and here I am. So I'm trying to um, bring her story and uh, her biography back to life. I'm hoping I'll, I'll turn that into at least an article. And I'm also doing some more some more translations of her work. So I've translated um, a, a short, a novella called A Provincial Newspaper. The first chapter or two uh, was published in the Pockentrager uh, translation issue. And I'm, so I'm continuing to work with her. Um, and then we'll see what happens after that. <laughs> Um, Will you do her proud? Thank you so much, Jessica. Uh, For our listeners, again, Diary of a Lonely Girl, published by Syracuse Press. It's available at the Yiddish Book Center's online and on-site bookstore, shop.yiddishbookcenter.org, and available in bookstores throughout the country. Um, Thanks so much for your work bringing this to publication, and we look forward to more and more and more of your work in translation. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on the show. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. 
For more on Yiddish and Jewish culture, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. Today's podcast was coordinated by Sam Brivik and produced by Sarah Blakefeld. Be well, be healthy, and tune in again soon. Thank you.